Chapter 1, 1970, on Heritage, Jerry Ross's Philadelphia label. One of the many Philly soul groups that Jerry produced, though, he's probably better known for all his work with a young Kenny Gamble or Leon Huff or Tommy Bell. My personal fave was the Sapphires, but try as I did, they didn't sing about money, so I figured we wouldn't, talk, we wouldn't play them this segment anyway. We are, uh, we are going to talk about that, that's for sure. Everybody's got questions, and yes, Jasmine producer extraordinaire came up with the perfect guest for us, Dr. Lamont. Black, Assistant Professor of Finance at DePaul. Welcome to WGN Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Riley. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have, uh, I have plenty of questions, but the, the, the very first one I had, I was looking over your resume, and you did your undergraduate study in modern thought and literature. And, you know, we, That's right. we used to say back in the day that that was the major of, I don't want to go to Vietnam. But, of course, this was 1979, when, or 1997, when you graduated, so clearly that wasn't your issue. What on earth possessed you to do that? Well, uh, you might ask my parents the same question because uh, they were certainly confused as well. But, uh, you know, I, I'm a person who loves big ideas, and um, it's almost like a philosophy degree. And so, you know, I'm sure that might come out in the uh, conversation we have about, you know, what is the, the best way to organize society? What are the ideas that really drive us forward? And uh, so... You know, it all worked out. Oh, I'm sure it did, but I looked at that. I thought, Stanford University, I can only imagine what your parents were thinking. But it uh, it did work out. You uh, proved everybody wrong and got your M.A. at Ui Pui, as we used to call Indiana University at Purdue University, and your Ph.D. at IU and uh, uh, Kelly School of Business. No no slouch school, that's for, that's for darn sure. And not only that, but you were an economist at the Federal Reserve, which uh, I find very interesting because, of course, like many people, I, I always point out it's neither federal nor a reserve. So uh, we'll uh, talk about the creature from Jekyll Island. But what I really want to know right now, cutting to the chase, what's really going on with the coin shortage? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating issue because, you know, some of your listeners are likely very aware of this, but some of the others may not even be aware at all. So um, U.S. coins are, you know, part of how some people pay for goods and services, and typically we just take them for granted, you know, loose change in the pocket or a, a jar at home. But uh, there is a coin shortage, and uh, many businesses have a hard time uh, having a coin inventory. And so when people want to pay with cash and try and get change in coins, sometimes there's just simply no coins on site at the business. And so 
it's had some pretty big implications for the way people pay for things, and, and some businesses have really struggled to be able to, to make that adjustment. Now, I've been, I've been buying things for, I guess, the better part of 70 years or so, and i got to tell you, never have I gone into a grocery store where they said, we don't make exact change, we just round it up because we don't have coins. So are you indicating that maybe this has happened before, and if so, how did we miss it? Uh, well, it's really a, a result of COVID-19, and, um, you know, I, I, there's a chance that it's happened in the past, but uh, I think it's, it's not to this scale. So, you know, because of the, the quarantine and many businesses uh, shutting down for that length of time, there was just basically a freeze in the circulation of money even here in the United States, which some of us might find hard to believe. But um, when that money stopped circulating, it became hard to continue to get it to the places where it was needed. And so when things started to reopen, um, the the coins just simply weren't there uh, when they were needed. And so if, uh, if a company isn't able to make change, then they either have to ask for exact change or a different means of payment. It's fascinating to me, then. It's not that they weren't producing enough coins. It's just that the coins we had weren't moving. And I always, years ago, when I programmed radio stations and stuff, when I'd look at a market, I would always want to know not how wealthy it was or not in terms of advertisers and all that, but what I want to know is how fluid was it. You know, you took a St. Louis, which was stayed and, and pretty much set in its ways, versus a Kansas City where everything was fluid and moving, and you, you'd be have an easier time grabbing the money from the places where money was on the move. And I found it decidedly different in various cities where sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. So I'm having a feeling that that's a lot bigger than, than radio advertising. What you're saying is that's kind of the backbone of our currency? Yeah, you know, there are supply issues. So U.S. coins are produced by the U.S. Mint, and that dates all the way back to 1792 when I was created by Congress, um, and the U.S. Mint, you know, they're cranking out coins every year, new mintage, and there was some disruption to supply, so, you know, the, the U.S. Mint, just like all um, businesses, reduced employee headcount. Uh, they were trying to get more social distancing in their production facilities, but, um, you know, I, I don't think that's really the main driver, so if you look back as early as last year, only about 17% of our total coins in circulation are coming from new production. So it really is a circulation issue, which is the domain of the Fed. Uh, So the Federal Reserve manages that by collecting coins from banks, redistributing bank uh, coins back to banks. And so, you know, our cash system really flows through the banking system. The Federal Reserve manages that system. And Typically, it's like you said, it's something that's liquid. It goes kind of behind the scenes without people even noticing. But when those uh, sort of supply chain problems pop up, then it can become an issue. And, and you know, just to, for your listeners to think about grocery stores, you know, going to your, your grocery store and not being able to find something on the shelf that is just kind of always there. You know, we're very familiar now with toilet paper rationing, hand sanitizer rationing, and and frankly, we're now talking about coin rationing around the United States. 
Now, with that in mind, how long do you think this will last? Uh, you know, I don't think that we're talking about uh, a year or even six months. I think it's just uh, maybe, you know, a few more months. Certainly, if things can continue to reopen, which itself is a big question. But um, back in June, the, the Federal Reserve created something called the U.S. Coin Task Force, where they're very aware of this issue, and they're working with industry uh, uh practitioners to, to find a solution. Um, so I, I think they have developed some responses to try and improve circulation. The U.S. Mint has now put out a press statement saying that they're back to full production, and so there shouldn't be any supply issues. Um, but I think, the, you know, the, the question is sort of how quickly can that circulation pick up and and how much can the the coins there you know it's not a problem that there aren't enough coins in existence it's just they're not being put back into the system and so one interesting story that your uh listeners might um relate to which is right here in the chicago area so there's a milwaukee bank the community state bank uh that is offering a coin buyback program where they offer a five dollar bonus for every one hundred dollars in coins as a way to get more coins into the bank so that then they can supply those coins to the businesses that they work with. So, you know, I think there are some ways that people are coming up with uh, ideas for how to, to solve this problem. That's amazing because that's 5%. That's more than they, that's 100 times more than they might get on any investment, maybe more than that at the moment. So that that's not that's bad. That's right. Yeah. To start digging through the couches because right. it's a way to make money now. Exactly. But you got to go to Milwaukee to do it. I assume that they don't come pick it up. Correct. Yeah. Now, cryptocurrencies are in the news, and we are going to talk a lot about that because you're going to explain it so that everyone understands it. That's going to be your task. But before we uh, before we get there, one of the things you'll hear about that all the time is, well, it's not real. And anytime I hear that, I say to myself, well, wait a minute. Today, money is not real. What is it backed by? It's basically, as far as I know, only backed by our confidence. Now, of course, I'm a Luddite. I'd like to return to the gold standard or something. But uh, failing that, uh, our money, other than confidence in the government and such, does it have any intrinsic value? No, I, I think you're right there. You know, we, um, we went off the gold standard here in the U.S. in the 1970s under Richard Nixon. And so... The U.S. dollar is no longer pegged to the price of gold, and so it's freely floating. And uh, the, the definition for that is something called fiat currency, which is a French word that means it has value simply by decree. And so the, if the government says it has value, then it has value as legal tender, but uh, it's not backed by anything. And so it's only as long as the people who are willing to take it uh, uh, continue to do so, that people will continue to acquire it and use it as money. But I fully agree that cryptocurrency, in that sense, is no more or less real than uh, other forms of currency. Because if you think about like a, a dollar bill, it's really just uh, processed cotton with some ink uh, printed on it. So you know, it's really about more so about the government entity behind it than the actual physical currency itself. 
Right, because if for some reason there was a profound lack of confidence in the United States government, that dollar, certainly on a worldwide basis, could be as worthless as the toilet paper that's not on the shelves. There's just nothing that... Uh, and I think most people don't realize that that money has nothing behind it other than our collective belief that we're using it as a means of trade, which is which is frightening to think about. Like you mentioned, uh, uh, Nixon, and I think actually wasn't he the last death knell of silver? Uh, I think gold might have gone before it. I'm not sure, but uh, they were they were working on this a while. And uh, with that in mind, then you get into what is a central bank? Why do we have one? Of course, the Federal Reserve is not our first one. At our foundation of this country, it was it was quite an quite an argument, from what I understand. Jefferson was absolutely opposed, and others were for it. But tell me about the purpose of a central bank. Yeah, so it is a fascinating part of our history because there's a really a debate around whether we want to centralize or nationalized money to begin with. It used to be really more private regional currencies. Um, and so that I would say the role of the central bank is both to centralize the role of money. So having one currency that's used across the country can, you know, help integrate business uh, means of payment and, and, and exchange so that you can have those more cross-border transactions and things like that. Um, but it's also to manage the supply of that currency. And so, you know, I like to tell my students that when they hear about the Fed raising rates or lowering rates, you know, that, that's uh, a reference to the federal funds rate, which is an interest rate that banks uh, pay when they are borrowing funds from one another. But Ultimately, it comes down to the supply of money in the banking system. And so when the, the Fed, as they've been cutting rates during this current uh, pandemic, they are increasing the money supply in a, as a way to try and provide monetary stimulus. Now, there are some people who think that's the, the right thing to be doing. There's certainly, I think, a lot of economists' uh, support for that, that you know, central banks should be trying to support the economy during a recession. But one of the risks and the concern is that if there's too much um, liquidity provided, that as an economy comes out of recession, that there could be uh, a risk of rising inflation and even hyperinflation. And we didn't see that at all coming out of the financial crisis. Some people thought we would have that under QE with 2009-2010. But the, uh, the the current environment, again, suggests that inflation is slowly ticking up, but it's, it's, it's not going to take off. And so the risk of additional money supply still seems to be relatively low. Now, when we're talking about increasing the money supply, I assume what we're talking about is through debt when we're talking about low interest rates. And when we look at the 2008, September 2008, little problem, uh, and the result from it. It seems that since that time, debt has been the major instrument that has fueled the quote-unquote recovery. Yeah, so it's, you know, I, w- I want to make sure that your listeners don't think of, you know, like the Congress uh, and con- congressional borrowing uh, and the fit, which is more of a fiscal stimulus. So it's not the Treasury issuing more debt, but it is lowering interest rates in the sense of uh, lowering the cost of borrowing. So, yes, I, you're, you're totally right that one of the roles of monetary easing or 
lowering interest rates is reducing the cost of borrowing so that people will then be able to spend more and then sort of jumpstart the economy. Um, and, you know, that certainly makes sense as it relates to trying to generate an economic recovery coming out of this recession. But to your other point, you know, uh, if households take on too much debt, if businesses become over leveraged, then some people would say we're potentially sowing the seeds for more problems down the road. Yeah, and I'm not even thinking about it on the household debt, although that's an enormous number that's frightening to the core. But uh, when I look at uh, all the contraction, we're almost getting oligopolies, whether it's department stores or it's uh, communications companies or, or whether it's banks. I mean, now there's three of everything rather than hundreds of people. And I, I know this goes back even as far as the leveraged buyouts in, in the Reagan years and, and since then. But it seems like, and you're seeing this with the bankruptcies right now, that are announced, uh, just about all of these, what are now mega companies, when you scratch the surface, it is just a mound of debt. Yeah, I, you know, I think it depends um, somewhat on the dynamic between large and small firms, because you could say that lowering interest rates allows large firms to borrow more and then acquire small firms. But you know, there's certainly an argument also to be made that small businesses rely on credit and lower interest rates can also help them to survive. Of and course. So, uh, I'm not sure interest rates themselves drive consolidation, but, you know, I think what we're seeing right now with the pandemic is, uh, you know, small businesses are certainly taking the brunt of it. And so, you know, I, I think we are potentially seeing even more market concentration coming out of this. Yeah, right. And not meaning to imply that that was necessarily the full reason, because, of course, all, all the financial instruments that the, the mega players use, uh, it's not as simple as uh, equating it to a home loan, as you well know. So there's a number of things that, that go into play. But it just seems, when I look at the economy, that it worries me, and this is exactly where we're going to pick it up, that it's fueled by debt. What's, what's real? And when you have very low interest rates and you have people who are in fiduciary responsibility positions such as pension funds or insurance companies who are there because they the money that they have needs to work for them you know needs to make money what do you do then do you get into riskier and riskier investments where are we going all right just some questions if you've got questions and we will get to cryptocurrencies i promise uh i i have a feeling that i've got somebody here who has answers dr lamont black i'm raleigh james 888-876-5593 that's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio. Here's to the bubble man, drink to his health. Filling the punch bowl with bubbling wealth. They call him the maestro, 80 years young. Just watch the bubbles roll off his tongue. It's when the bubble man speaks, everyone hears. Don't know what he's saying, but the message is clear. Let the good times roll over, we'll pay up someday. Meanwhile, the bubbles float you away. Here's to the bears asleep in their dens. 
Here's to the bulls, may the good times never end. Here's to the hedgehogs and the weasels and the swine. Peddling snake oil in sparkling wine bottles. Who can make money out of thin hair? WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, and my buddy Luke reminded me, play Scott Peterson, play the Bubble Man. Yes, which, of course, uh, goes back to Alan Greenspan days as we uh, talk about uh, talk about the economy. But we're talking about with somebody who knows what they're doing, which is more than me when it comes to money, and that's Dr. Lamont Black, Assistant Professor of Finance at DePaul and Academic Director for the Central for Financial Services. Give us a call, 888-876-5593-8888. R O L L Y E, and as I as I was saying, the level of debt we have and the, the lack of interest, uh, I I worry. I worry particularly, like I was saying about pension funds and things like this that have to reinvest this money theoretically into safe investments. Are we getting to a place where where maybe our money is going to have less value with some of these moves? Yeah, I love that song because uh, you know there's a lot of talk about bubbles, not just uh, you know, in our currency, there's also a lot of talk about bubbles in cryptocurrency, and it all comes back to these questions of what is the money actually worth. But, uh, you know, I think there's been concerns that the bubbles were actually the things that came before the crisis. And so uh, now the question is, as we're trying to dig out of this crisis and recovery, you know, are we making things better or worse? And that really comes down to yeah, again, maybe uh, differences of philosophy. Of some people would say, you know, when things are bad, just take the hit and move on. Don't try and cover it up. But uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of economic thought that would say, hey, do everything you can from the the governmental side, both congressional budget and Federal Reserve, uh, in order to to try and prevent things from getting worse. And that's what we're seeing. And whether that's sort of fake money or uh, too much debt, I think, you know, it might be a few years before history really uh, plays that out. Yes. And so this is the heart of cryptocurrency, because as we laid that foundation, I think we've really proven that the currency we think is uh, is valid, is valid because we believe in it. Now, we'll juxtapose that to cryptocurrency for anybody who is a Luddite, like I am partially. What exactly is cryptocurrency? Okay, so... Cryptocurrency is a term that some of your listeners might have heard of. Uh, I think another term, which I might, I might even like better, is digital currency. So it's really currency that exists purely in an electronic or digital state. So it's sort of native to the Internet versus um, you know physical cash that we can then use electronic payments. Cryptocurrency is solely uh, electronic digital money. And the the example of cryptocurrency that most listeners are likely to be familiar with is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency that dates back to 2008. Uh, it was created basically as a software protocol for uh, what's called peer-to-peer electronic cash so that people could exchange money directly with one another on the Internet. And... It, it is a form of money which is totally separate from government. And so, you know, I think in our society, and our culture, we've come to associate money with governments. The U.S. 
dollar with the U.S. government, um, the Japanese yen with the Japanese government, and so on. But uh, it is possible to have money without sovereignty, and that's exactly what cryptocurrency does. And so then it's basically a form of money which is managed by the, the people themselves. And so some listeners have probably heard of these things called Bitcoin miners, which are supporting the Bitcoin network and basically verifying transactions when one person wants to buy or sell Bitcoin with another. And so it is a system of money that functions solely in this private online community, and people can use it to buy and sell goods and services just like they would uh, with normal uh, U.S. dollars or other types of currency. I think most people are comforted in the fact that money, even if they're making electronic payments and things like that, but still money is tangible. You can hold it. It came from the bank down the street and all this. And you, you say to yourself, uh, well, here's here's Bitcoin. It's completely uh, living on the Internet. And what if there's a big computer crash? Uh, what what if there's hacking? What if there's you, you fill in the blanks? Uh, in other words, why would people believe that this had security? That's a great question, and I think that's really why Bitcoin has become a household name, is I think it, it really solved that problem. You know, if you think about how, does, how do you store value on the Internet when things can be copied and replicated very easily? So, you know, how, how do you pre- pre- prevent uh, counterfeiting when you're talking about something that's digital versus physical? Well, Bitcoin uses a, a technology called blockchain, which is designed precisely to provide that security. And so if your uh, listeners have heard about Bitcoin being anonymous uh, or uh, non-traceable, the crypto in cryptocurrency is actually from the word crypto cryptography, which is basically a system for... Um, storing information in a way that cannot be uh, hacked or stolen. Now, Bitcoin, there's plenty of stories about Bitcoin being hacked or stolen, but those are stories about Bitcoin being uh, held by some sort of entity or exchange on the behalf of other people, and that that can certainly be a, a a place where Bitcoin can be stolen in the sense of being moved to one digital wallet from another one without someone knowing it. But in its purest sense, if, if Bitcoin functions the way it's supposed to be, there is a public digital wallet, which keeps a record of the Bitcoin in that wallet, but there is also a private key, and only the owner of that wallet can access that value through that private key. And so blockchain is a system for preventing some outsider from simply coming in and and hacking that system. So then part of its ultimate success is going to be how much faith people put in blockchain to do what it's supposed to do. Yes. And so there's this very interesting um, idea in cryptocurrency right now that, uh, like, the code is the law or... You know, when you create a system that functions in this way, if people believe in that system and respect that system, then the function that the system can function. So one way to think about what Bitcoin does is it doesn't rely on banks to keep track of value. So 
one of the ways you started this segment is you said, you know, for most of us, we, we don't have a lot of cash uh, under the mattress. We have cash in bank accounts. And so we're trusting that safety and security to the banking system, uh, both in terms of protection from criminals, but also that the banks will keep accurate records of those accounts. So Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they try to do that without delegating that function. So so one reason why miners are so important is it's basically a whole network which is looking at one sort of ledger of value and everyone is agreeing on that ledger. And so if my wallet in that ledger says that I have five Bitcoin, then that ledger is shared among the entire community, which makes it very difficult and some would even say impossible for some uh, hacker or otherwise to come in and somehow change that ledger and move those five Bitcoins from my wallet to another wallet because the ledger is what the ledger says and everyone has the same ledger. That's part of how cryptocurrency uh, maintains that trust. It's interesting, the idea of uh, cryptocurrency, electronic money. This actually goes back to the 80s. I think it was David Chom, wasn't it? Digicash. And uh, they were talking about it at the time. And at that point, I think the whole value was it would be untraceable uh, by the issuing bank. And so, obviously, the idea that it is untraceable is still one of the the very big thing that makes it uh, makes it so attractive but when you start to talk about miners and everybody's got the same ledger there's traceability in this to some degree yes and i think it's it's fascinating how you know i think it's great that you've put these two topics together about you know the coin shortage and cryptocurrency because in many ways, cash is one of the last untraceable forms of money. You know, if you try and move money through a bank account, then there's all sorts of flags that will move, uh, that, that mm-hmm. will set off. But, you know, and so, you know, some criminal activity continues to function through cash. But as some of that has moved towards cryptocurrency, you know, listeners might be familiar with things like the Silk Road and not just uh, drugs, but arms trafficking. Uh, I do think that um, that there has become a greater awareness that that cryptocurrency is has these sort of two sides. In one sense, it is totally non-traceable. So if you don't know who holds that private key, there's no way to know the identity of the person behind that digital wallet. But on the other hand, the entire ledger is known to all people. And so anything moving in and out of that digital wallet is totally transparent. Right. And so it's this, I think it's a misnomer to say that it's this total like black web, dark money. It's really, it has both features and it's just sort of how those features play out in different settings. Of course, more than one government has been absolutely scandalized and terrorized at the, the, the thought, of, thought of this taking hold. At this point in time, are there any laws, pro or con, anywhere about Bitcoin? There are some other countries that have uh, made Bitcoin illegal, both holding it and exchanging it. Many times it's in developing countries, which... Uh, are struggling with some sort of um, currency inflation where the value of their currency is 
declining and people are trying to move value into Bitcoin. Um, but here in the U.S., you know, the, I think regulators have tried to take a relatively neutral stance. Uh, and I, I don't view Bitcoin or other current cryptocurrencies as being an immediate threat to the U.S. dollar. I view them as sort of complementary. You know, some money best functions through uh, government-regulated channels, but I think there is a, a place for more uh, private and, and also, you know, this digital form of currency because at this point it's really a form of financial innovation and and some of the that those applications have been uh for the wrong purposes but i think as we we see this moving forward we're going to see more and more uh, uh ideas coming out about how do we use money how do we exchange money between people so if you know, like my students if they want to split a bill at a, at the bar or something like that they don't they don't you know pull out their wallets and, and start counting dollars, they, they use this app called Venmo where they can directly transfer funds to one of their friends uh, through their smartphone. That's an example of how money is changing already, and I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, right, and it's accepted. And, of course, like anything else, the younger generation is the first to adopt. What I find interesting in some of the laws of which I'm aware is that you've got countries where cryptocurrencies are legal, but then it is illegal to actually use them, like Russia. You, you have to purchase with a ruble, although you can own cryptocurrencies. So you've got two different tracks there, one being can, can you hold it, and the other being can you use it. And uh, I know Thailand a couple of years ago said they were going to have their own cryptocurrency. I don't know if they ever actually did that. But uh, we have somebody. Well, who- one of the interesting questions is, you know, is Bitcoin a form of cash that we use to buy stuff or is it a form of financial investment? So I think many people here in the U.S. are holding Bitcoin not because they want to use it to buy pizzas or coffee. It's they're buying it because they think the price is going to go up, which is really a form of investment. Oh, abs- absolutely. And, of course, it, it has gone way up and come down as well. It's, it's clearly speculative, to say the least. I've, uh, I've got somebody who doesn't want to come on the air but does have a question, and I'm, I'm about to ask it. If you've got a question and do want to come on the air, 888-876-5593. It's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. I'm talking with Dr. Lamont Black about cryptocurrency and more on WGN Radio. I'll cut Lee Dorsey short there, but yes, forget about the dough and think about me. Do Re Me, 1962 on Fury, follow up to his first hit, Yaya, which went to number one on the R&B charts and top ten on the pop charts. Don't worry, me didn't do that well, but what a great, uh, a great song. All right, so uh, I, uh, I realize, as usual, you guys wait till the last minute, so we'll try to get all these questions in, and I'll stop hogging the guest. And uh, one WGN listener wants to know, how do you buy cryptocurrencies? So, Dr. Black, how do you buy it? So there's a lot of different ways to get into it. Um, Coinbase.com is uh, one way to, to buy it that's quite popular, and so if you give them... Uh, some of your financial information, then you can use 
uh, you know, a credit card or checking account to, to purchase Bitcoin. There, there's also a Bitcoin ATM network, uh, certainly here in Chicago and many other major cities where you can actually put uh, U.S. cash into the machine in order to, to buy Bitcoin. So there's a lot of different ways to go about it. All right. But if you're if you're new to it and just wanting to know, Coinbase.com is one place to start. Yeah, I remember those ATMs. I think they started in Austin. WGN's Michael in West Chicago. Welcome. The question for your guest is, if uh, quantum computers become a reality, how will that affect the security of uh, cryptocurrency? Good question. What do you think? Uh, yes, very good question. And, and just to add to that, uh, this is a question that I sometimes get with my students. So, you know, the way cryptocurrency works is through cryptography, which is basically a numerical problem, which is very difficult to solve. And so if you have quantum commu- computing, then that computer can solve that problem faster than anyone else and uh, can potentially break down uh, this system this network for uh to maintaining the the this ledger and so yeah it's a, it's a it's a great question and a bit of an unknown specifically as it relates to bitcoin because the 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 mechanism that bitcoin uses is something called proof of work which quantum computing could disrupt but there are, there are other cryptocurrencies that use other methods for maintaining that ledger which i think are less susceptible to quantum computing so i don't think it's would ever be the death of crypto, it would just change the sort of dynamic as to which cryptocurrencies uh, continue to, to thrive after that. And, you know, that's so nice as you say it as a sentence, and I think to the, the guy who's on the losing end of that when they discover that is really, really going to be hurt. <laughs> yes, so, yes. All right, Michael, great question. Thank you for calling. Thank you. All right. So, yes, indeed. And there have been losses and theft and fraud over the years. I know Mount Gox was famous for a while. That was in all the news. And uh, uh, but even more recently, I guess, as a couple of years ago, uh, Bitcoin and some others were hit by a hashing attack. And I don't know if they ever figured out who did that, did they? No, it's uh, you know, there's there's a number of stories that have, I think, given people pause and concern about owning Bitcoin. Uh, you know, there's even some funny stories about people uh, losing or forgetting their private key and, you know, the money's still there, but they can't access it. So, uh, so you have to be careful. But, um, but I think over time, these are things that are going to become, you know, easier to, to manage. And, and I think as it becomes more mainstream, then, then I think it'll become more normal. I agree with you. I think time is really going to be what raises the confidence level. And when it's all said and done, it's always a con game. And if the confidence is there, ultimately the technology will be. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for spending an hour with us, Dr. Black. Thank you, Riley. Appreciate it. Yes, Dr. Lamont Black, Assistant Professor of Finance at DePaul. Yeah, go take a course. And uh, he's a fascinating guy. And it is a fascinating topic, but, you know, it, it's not for the faint of heart because it will, uh, it will for a while uh, uh, certainly have, uh, have its phases. Like, like I mentioned, Mt. Gox, that was 2014. And I think they lost about 750,000 coins, which was uh, uh, what happened at the time was that at that point the price was 1100 60 a coin and it fell to under 400 on that news and so it, it's been a, a lot higher since that then you, you hear just gonzo numbers but yeah that thing in may of 2018 that was a hit too